You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Our desire is to honor and share the best parts of the Christian contemplative traditions so that this collective wisdom might serve the flourishing of humanity, all beings, and all of creation. My name is Ben Kesey, and I lead the development team at the Center for Action and Contemplation. I want to thank all of you who are generous donors, giving freely and cheerfully to make this work possible. If you've been impacted by these podcast conversations and are inspired to invest in the future of CAC's mission and work, twice per year, we invite your financial support. To contribute, go to cac.org donate to make a gift. Thank you so much. On today's episode, we're exploring the third theme of the alternative orthodoxy. For those who see deeply, there is only one reality. By reason of the incarnation, there is no truthful distinction between sacred and profane. This was a really exciting and interesting conversation. I love this thing. Yeah. And I think there's something about, you know, growing up in the evangelical tradition, there was such a clear marker between sacred and profane. Mm-hmm. Christian music, secular music. Oh, yeah. Christian like, movies, if you remember those, and yeah. secular movies. It was so stark. So stark. And we created a whole subculture of belonging, right? So, like, if you like, you know, whatever the band is, if you like Nirvana, then you're going to love, I don't know, I should remember who, like, Newsboys? I don't know. Yeah, like, something Do you remember like that. all the yeah. Christian bands? Right. Oh, man. And basically, like, you weren't a Christian if you weren't participating in that subculture of, of what we thought was sacred and in the world, but not of the world. Right. Your street cred as a Christian depended upon that. That's right. And I think that's why this theme is so healing mm. to see that one reality and to see that that distinction is false. And Richard really helps invite us into seeing the wholeness of reality and that there is no profane, that it is all one sacred universe. Yeah. And it's also what the mystics invite us into that they glimpsed in their experiences of the divine, the sense of oneness and one reality. And we take a look at that, about how mystical experience is essentially the veil parting to reveal this one reality. Yeah, I love that scene from that sense of oneness. Mm. And I think it is only through the example of uh, teachers and mystics who can help guide us in that and can help those scales drop from our eyes so we can see reality as it truly is and celebrate the, the sacrality of it all. Yeah, which doesn't mean, however, that we shy away from prophetic action. That's right. But it means that we we move into prophetic action with a different energy. And and instead of being reactive, we become creative. Yes. Participators in trying to heal and support and manifest that one reality even further. Yeah, I love how that complexity demands that creativity from us to be true agents of change in the world. So with that, we hope you'll enjoy this episode on the third theme of the alternative orthodoxy. All right, this is very exciting. We are ready to go with the third theme of the alternative orthodoxy, which is for those who see deeply, there's only one reality. By reason of the incarnation, there is no truthful distinction between sacred and profane. I wonder if you would kick us off if you have a story (laughs) that connects to this theme that helps us ground in our own experience. You know what? We were just, before we started recording, we were talking about you too. And I think that for me, growing up in a very conservative Baptist background, the sacred was anything that happened in church was the sacred, Mm -hmm. right? And, Mm And music, yeah, music, therefore, the only sacred music was that music that said Jesus about a million times where Jesus was your personal boyfriend and you were singing to Jesus and God and the spirit. And so I remember growing up and having that whole sacred secular issue, especially around music. I remember growing up, I was only allowed to listen to Christian music and Christian Mm, bands. It's common. And then when I finally had enough money, like from babysitting and I bought my first two (laughs) secular albums, which were by the way, Mariah Carey and Alanis Morissette, which I feel like says a lot about me. (laughs) (laughs) But that sense of like that, that dualistic split that I grew up with around music. And as we were just talking about you too, I remember the moment when I realized that there could be music that was sacred that didn't have to be church music. Mm. And you too did that for me. Like I remember wow. 
album after album being like, this is scripture. This is sacred. This is helping me live and inspiring me. And I think for so many of us, it kind of restored a sense of faith during times of deconstruction. But if I'm totally honest with you both, like I am still really struggling with this. I can feel the ways in which I still try to separate you know, this yeah. is the holy sacred camp and this is the secular camp. And I just put out an album recently and I could feel my discomfort in releasing that and being like, well, what, you know, what are the contemplatives going to think about this? <laughs> you know, this isn't Gregorian chant. It's yeah. electronic pop music. Like, so I'm still trying to integrate this idea of the one reality and to embrace that fully in my body and in my life. What about you, Paul? Well, the story that came to mind when I was thinking about this was back in the day, I went on a bike trip on bicycle from Calgary, Alberta, down to Fort Collins, Colorado. Wow. And uh, yeah, you know, it's just a, it's an easy way of transportation, right? Yeah, it just yeah. takes a few weeks. Yeah. And we got outside of Billings and I checked my voicemail for the first time. And I had a lot of messages and I'm not a person who's on the phone very much. So I was very confused and I had tried to listen to the voicemails, but my reception was off. So we went inside this little country store and I called my parents and I said, what's going on? A friend of mine had been killed in a car accident. Mm. So here I'm in this small country store mm. receiving this news mm. and I'm with my friend and I tell him and we just both start bawling and we're hugging. We're in this mm. you know, little convenience store just sobbing. We eventually, I recall falling on the floor just like mm. we've just wow. lost it. We've just lost a friend who was I think 21 at the time. The owner of the store came over and she was holding her baby in a, one of those baby Bjorns, those mm -hmm. little carriers. Mm -hmm. Yes. And the baby was looking right at us and she's asking us if we're okay, what has happened. And I just recall like feeling the immensity of the, the grief of losing Antoine and then looking in this baby's blue eyes. Mm -hmm. And I had this moment of one reality, of oh, life wow. and death all really? in that moment. And I knew everything was going to be okay. I knew everything was not okay. But it was it was the totality of reality that was just pouring through that baby's eyes. Wow. Hmm. And even now, sometimes as I look into my son Arlo's eyes and I have flashes of Antoine because of that experience of that one reality. Yeah, so I, I hold that memory in, in the grief and also the lightness of hmm. this mystery of life and death and resurrection. Hmm. Wow. So that... Not to bring it down a level, but stop that, being that, such a mystic. Paul. That's just where it really just <laughs> pierced my heart. No, that's that's profoundly beautiful, and I think what I appreciate in that story is that you're bringing together the experience of death and life as one reality. Mm. And we don't we don't look at the world and life like that. Yeah, we don't. No, we don't. And you did it with sacred and profane. Mm -hmm. Of course, I approach everything too theologically, but I hope it gives foundation and permission for what both of you just said. I don't know if I ever taught you in the living school Carl Rahner's phrase. Well, you probably learned it at Creighton, mm. the supernatural existential. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Two big words, I know, but... just feels like an Abba song. <laughs> <laughs> Once you have that resolved, this whole thing is, well, yeah, you know, that on the existential level, which is... Let's just translate that as a real, present life, pastoral, he would probably wouldn't say pastoral, level. This is where it happens. He said, there, I'm sure he gave me permission to talk this way, that there's no truthful distinction between sacred and profane. The supernatural is the existential, is the existential. That isn't something that most evangelicals were taught. Mm -hmm. The division was very clear. There was the natural and there was the supernatural. And by the way, we older Catholics were the same way too. It's a huge and wonderful leap. L let me add this to it, that the one is the sacrament of the other. Mm. You still can appreciate your beautiful Christian song, now and then, if it's beautiful. On occasion. <laughs> <laughs> because it's pointing so directly to the other songs in your life, or affirming them, or validating them. And, and this little beautiful child's eyes looked through the death of your friend. A sacrament connects 
the sacred and the profane and says, you know what? This is not profane. It's sacred. I mean, take every water, bread and wine, any sacramental action. It's not the thing in itself, but it points to the thing and says, it's in on the deal. Look at that. Don't look at me. Until Christianity makes that movement to the supernatural existential, uh, that the supernatural is found in the existential moment, I think we our religion will continue to be, I'll call it a sideshow. It's a sideshow. It isn't the main act. Mm-hmm. Because it, it doesn't make all of this meaningful or true. And this is all most people have. So instead of calling them sinners, are superficial, and maybe some of them are. I am too. So <laughs> who cares, you know? But you're on to something good. Thank you for starting with this third theme in this way. Well, thinking of the ordinary mysticism <laughs> of, of the supernatural existential, that needs to be a song. I'm reflecting on Thomas Merton's passage of oh. Fourth and Walnut, and yes. I, I'd like to read it, and then mm. um, maybe we can talk about this experience that he had that I think points to this tenet so clearly it of sure the would. one reality. Yes. So he says, in Louisville, at the corner of 4th and Walnut in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people, that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation in a special world. This sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and such a joy to me that I almost laughed out loud. I have the immense joy of being man, a member of the race in which God himself became incarnate, as if the sorrows and stupidities of the human condition could overwhelm me now that I realize we all are. And if only everybody could realize this. But it cannot be explained. There's no way of telling people that they are all walking around shining like the sun. Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depths of their hearts, where neither sin nor desire nor self-knowledge can reach, the core of their reality, the person that each one is in God's eyes. If only they could all see themselves as they really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time. There would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. But this cannot be seen only believed and understood by a peculiar gift. The guy was a master. (laughs) As I read that, I think certainly not in in such an eloquent way (laughs) could I have articulated it, but I think I've I've had moments like this. Mm. And I wonder, Richard, if if you've had, if you could share with us an experience of fourth and walnut in that way that you have had. Mm, Which one? Where you were able to kind of see through the veil into that, moment of of oneness one reality which one would be worth telling or <laughs> capable of being told and i don't want to say by that, that that it needs to be something super emotional ecstatic or special you know where my mind most quickly goes is back to my many hermitage experiences mm. where by the third week I maybe hadn't talked to a single individual, you know, for three weeks. Usually hadn't talked. I would just, I, I'm thinking of the Arizona ones now, as I did four, I guess, in Arizona. And I just fell in love with every cactus. I fell in love with every little roadrunner and little javelina these little pigs that run around in the Arizona desert. I just would stand still and stop walking. It's like, it doesn't get any better than this. This is it. If this is not heaven, what would heaven be? How could it be better? It was total satiation, total contentment. It was even better when the whole cosmos got in on it, and it was usually sunset, more in the evening, in the morning, 
and the lights would just play on the on the ground and on the cacti. Yeah, I almost would have trouble to start moving again because I thought I'd lose it. Mm. And you can't stay there, though. You, you know how at the Transfiguration, mm. which is the same message, really, Jesus tells them to walk down the mountain with him and don't talk about it. Why? Because you can't talk about it. And here we are, all three of us, trying. <laughs> and we still have to try. Yeah, the the really real, I used to say at New Jerusalem, put an R, capital R on both of those, really real, is ineffable, unspeakable. And yet we have to try for the sake of our sisters and brothers to let them know there is something more and they're not alone and it's a safe universe. Mm. And I think of the transfiguration and the, the temptation of the disciples, well, let's set up a tent for, mm -hmm. so that we can, we can keep this experience going. And I wonder if you could speak to that too, about not clinging to those experiences, but allowing them to take their course and teach you whatever they need to be. This, I tell it just because it's a little humorous and you can delete it if you want. Now, you've probably heard it. As you know, the Franciscans own everything in the Holy Land where Jesus did anything. And we own the top of Mount Tabor, too. And there's a lovely friary up there with about four old sweet guys living. And so uh, after the tour group that I was leading had to go back down to the village where they were staying, I got to stay up there for the night. And two rather humorous things happened to make your very point. And I'm not making this up for the sake of a good story. First of all, Mount Tabor at night, all the tourist buses must leave. So the only people up there at night are the four or five Franciscans, you know? Wow. Oh, it just gets so quiet and so lovely. I see nailed to an olive tree is no camping. <laughs> I mean, I, I wonder, do they realize the absurdity of this? That this is the biblical story itself? No, you may not put up a tent. But it was very serious. Because everybody begs to stay up there overnight. And those dang Franciscans send you back down the mountain. Oh, my gosh. Because uh, no, they don't want it to become filled with outhouses. And I can see why they're protecting it. Then the other one was either better or worse. I don't know. It's very common in our houses in Europe and Mediterranean not to have screens. Screens are sort of an American phenomenon. So I finally could get myself to go to sleep in this. I said, I'll never live on Mount Tabor again. And I turn off the light and crawl in my little bed. And pretty soon, gnats are just buzzing around <laughs> my ears and flies. And it was horrible. <laughs> it was absolutely horrible. I'm in this holy place. And you're miserable. <laughs> and I'm miserable. Mount Tabor and I cannot spiritualize this one. There are mosquitoes in paradise, as one book said years ago. <laughs> I know those, both of those experiences were intended for me. I guess the point I'm really trying to make in this context is don't try to manufacture mm -hmm. such moments. Because if they're manufactured by the ego, or the, they will fail you just as quickly, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That seems to be so much what we have done in Christianity is try to manufacture those experiences. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I appreciate about the stories that you just shared, Richard, is that it's it's so both and, you know, it's like you're in this oh. holy place and you're miserable <laughs> and there's gnats. And I find that that I was able to really sink into this tenet so much more with your work on the universal mm. Christ. Oh, good. Because it allowed me to see the one reality as the Christic mm. uh, reality. And I, I wonder if you could share with us how this tenet relates to the universal Christ. Wow. It's essential. That's why I had to write that book. Mm. Some of my books I didn't have to write, but the universal Christ I had to write. And I'm glad God gave me the time to do it. You know, the very word cosmos, Barbara Holmes probably says this in her book, mm -hmm. I don't know. 
means harmony, harmony. The cosmos, they had an early word for ecology, and it was cosmos. I don't see how a religion can be a proper religion unless it's cosmological. (laughs) If God is any smaller than the namer, the holder together, the harmonizer of the whole cosmos, you've got a mere ethnic religion, uh, textbook religion, but not a a, a true religion. (laughs) It has to include everything. Now, where I gained that conviction so early, you've heard me say many times, many people think they bought that book, Everything Belongs, just because of the title. And I say, why was that true? Because I think our deep intuition as believers is, you know what, that has to be true. If there's one God who created all things, right, and God is everywhere. Now, those are in the first 16 questions of our Baltimore Catechism. Those are the direct one-line answers that we had to memorize. Yeah, There is one God who created all things, and, and question 16, God is everywhere. It would seem this would be the first corollary of that. Okay. And we're always afraid to unpack the implications. Now, I have a terrible suspicion about that. That it, And you've heard me say it in different contexts. I think it makes our clergy role less important. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh, no. It's called a theology of suspicion. Mm. If God is everywhere and there's one God who created the whole universe and it's all sacred, certainly our job of preaching and sacramentalizing and us doing the healing or whatever it might be has significantly dropped, Mm. significantly. Mm. It just doesn't keep us central anymore. I wish I didn't have to say that. And I'm not saying we don't need some form of leadership in the church, but this huge distinction between clergy and laity is itself a product of sacred and profane being separate. Kleros, from which the word clergy came, means the separated ones. So so we wore different outfits, we had titles, and in that, by and large, Protestantism did not reform Catholicism. It wanted to, it really did want to, the priesthood of all believers of Calvin. Mm -hmm. But now we have Presbyterian ministers, I guess. We're covenanters, uh, sort of priesthood of all believers, Christians. Yeah. I mean, there are still distinct roles of of pastoral staff. But yeah, I think in in theory, that was part and part of uh, the theology. Yeah. Yeah. But the Baptist minister. Oh, same hierarchy. Yes, yes, that's what I thought. Different names, different different outfits, Richard, (laughs) but the same. But what's fascinating about this is that, you know, we've been talking about the distinction between power over versus power with. Yes, yes. And and in one approach, right, the clerical approach or the, the sacred and profane approach, separateness requires a power over. It requires a hierarchy of power over. And that perpetuates separateness. So it's a little bit of a chicken and an egg creating separateness and creating these hierarchies of power and domination, wanting to control, wanting to create order and certainty. And then in this other paradigm, the communion paradigm, the power with paradigm, where God is everywhere and in everything, you have to let go of that hierarchy and certainty. And move with, and this strikes me as so much more consonant with the Trinity and the idea of flow and trust and love. Yes, yes. That doesn't mean, and I know you weren't saying that, that after that question has been resolved in your heart and mind, that some form of leadership cannot be reintroduced. Right. But now you're not tied to it. It isn't overly sacralized. Mm -hmm. It, It doesn't have undue power. Now, you know, Ken Wilber makes the distinction between actualization hierarchy, like a mother is, a father is, 
I better be in a hierarchy for those little ones, especially when they're little, because they don't know. They don't know they're going to hurt themselves. And you do know. You have to use your knowing to protect their unknowing. That's an actualization hierarchy. But what we've had in most of history, even in parenting, is domination hierarchy. Yes. That's right. And that's, uh, well, you were saying it, uh, with and over. Mm -hmm. And what we're trying to do now is turn that corner from domination hierarchies. The trouble is we're so used to yelling at every hierarchy and shooting it down that the so-called orange levels and green levels of spiral dynamics, those are levels of consciousness, they can waste 30 years on being anti-authority. Trying to flatten it all. Just, yeah. Just yeah. Every, the whole goal is get rid of leadership. Mm -hmm. the, all leadership is bad. That It's really a supreme waste of time. And after a while, puts you in such a rebellious mode that it's your first response to everything. And, you know, I, I say this probably with too much emphasis because ever since the founding of the center 32 years ago, that's been a third of the staff. They don't know they're there. They have to go through that. But uh, orange and green are still below mystic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When you get to the mystical non-dual level, no one's keeping you back from union. Mm. No one. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, you need a little kicking to experience union. I don't think it's our authority job to inflict that kicking. It's one of those paradoxes. Yeah. You know. I think I think about too, like especially in spirituality and religion, the professionalization of of elders versus mm. the natural elders who yes, embody yes. that. Yes. And when you give some twenty five year old the position of priest or uh, lead pastor or whatever it may be, if that internal experience is not there, I think this is part of why we don't see some of the, the, the vibrancy of the universal Christ present in communities is because they haven't tasted it themselves. There mm -hmm. hasn't been enough natural elders within the community. And I see that in my own I church agree. community where I'm drawn to elders who have that energy versus someone who may have that post. I'm with you. You know, I wrote an article once. I think it's the only major article I ever wrote that the Jesuits accepted in, <laughs> in their magazine called America. And it comes to mind because I, I never got a lot of feedback on it, positive or negative. So I thought it just fell flat. And just two weeks ago, I got a letter from a Jesuit saying, can you find that article for me? He said, you do know it was required reading for all Jesuits in America before ordination. Wow. Yeah. And the title of it, which I, I never knew had appealed to anybody, was Archetypal Priesthood is Not Always Ordained Priesthood. That was the title. Mm. And I defined archetypal priesthood, which is the way we need to move toward the feminization of priesthood, is... This just my dealing with the archetypes. The, the priestly wise man, wise woman archetype is the one who, who takes rabbits out of hats. Let's just play with that. Who says this looks like bread, but it's really Jesus. Always transforming things, saying it looks like this, but it's this. That's the core that is in every priestly, uh, even ancient mythologies and legends. And unless a person has the gift to transform things, this looks like suffering, but it's really redemption. Huh? Just go down the whole list. This looks like sin, but it's really going to bring you to God. Mm -hmm. That's the archetypal priesthood. And many ordained priests have none of that gift. Huh. I don't, our ministers, they, yeah. they just are impositions of order again. Whereas the priesthood has to put together disorder with order, and that's archetypal priesthood. Much rarer. And, you know, I won't be around to see the evolution of this feminization of the priesthood, but I would love to believe that it will 
hone in on this. That what we need are feminine archetypal priests, that they transform things by the way they talk, by the way they communicate. And they don't need priestcraft, <laughs> you know, special vestments and signs of the cross. And it's okay, it's okay, I do it myself, but it's not it of itself. I have to find that article again. Yeah, I'd love to read that. I've never given that to the school, have I? No, I don't think so. And it's so. a rather short article. It's about four pages, as I remember. Another name for everything will continue in a moment. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality, features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avett, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash That's cac.org slash O-N-E-I-N-G-A-R-T. Have you taken an online course with the Center for Action and Contemplation? Explore the intersection of ancient wisdom and Jesus' teachings in The Divine Exchange, an online course featuring Cynthia Bourgeau. Fully embrace divine interaction each day, starting June 16th. Register today at cac.org slash online dash ed. That's cac.org slash O-N-L-I-N-E dash E-D. I'm thinking about this tenet and the no truthful distinction between sacred and profane. Someone could flatten it and just say, it's all good. Like, how, do we, go. how do we Very embrace good. this tenet with moral courage and integrity while also seeing that there's no truthful distinction between the sacred and profane? You have to separate things before you can fittingly unite them. There is no unity unless there's, first of all, separation. Here's one of those paradoxical things. You have to see there's this and there's this, you know. Otherwise, and I know you've heard me say this, you have mere uniformity. And we're not searching for uniformity. We're seeking unity in the spirit. Where we say, yes, to look at it, this looks profane. This looks secular. Uh, to look at it, this looks sacred, this looks holy, this looks churchy, this is where the priests are in charge. Uh, okay, now suffer, and I use that word intentionally, suffer that division for a while and see the implications, see where it leads you, and long for some unification. Long for something that says, no, no, they are separate, but they're also one. I mean, Catholics are doing this every time they go to Mass, mm. and they don't get it, huh? This still, even as you receive it into your mundane body, is looks like bread and, and tastes like wine, but it's Jesus. So... It's not denying the distinction, it's overcoming the distinction at a deeper level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm thinking about how we were discussing the Trinity and how if all of reality is relational and in relationship, yes. if the foundational image that we have for reality is of community, then in a way, what helps me try to see this tenet as true. There's only one reality, no distinction between sacred and profane. And yet I do have that, you know, that prophetic urge and, and the, the call to moral courage to act. I think what helps me hold that tension is that I, if I see all reality as relationship, then my urge or my calling to participate and act in healing is wherever that relationship or relationality is being broken. Mm -hmm. So where in this great one reality is is relationality being abused? Mm. Where is that power over paradigm coming in and trying to destroy or oppress or hurt? There I have the moral responsibility to act 
in uh, resistance to that and try to, you know, because I have a responsibility to this one great reality Mm -hmm. to continue to perpetuate the one great reality. Does that even make sense? Yeah, it does. It makes a lot of sense. It's not that most people abuse it. They just don't see it. Yeah, that's it. They, they it's just unconscious. It. It's not even they there. They deny that there's any connection between this and that. That's right. The little cliche that's been used so much for the last 15 years of the flap of a butterfly's wing in China affects the air over here. Right, maybe that's, that's chaos theory. That's actually true. There's a <laughs> well, scientific... Well, that's it. I yeah. know. Isn't that hard to believe? <laughs> but it, it, people, I, I mean, physicists are trying to make that point. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? You and I can't see it, can't, we can't prove it, but apparently there are people who can. It's all connected, yeah. And that even the galaxies are spiraling in some kind of relationship to one another. I mean. It just gets bigger too much. and bigger and bigger. <laughs> oh, this is so wonderful. Yeah. You don't need churchy language to be brought to awe and wonder. And for me, as you know from the book, Just This, awe and wonder are the foundational religious instincts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you've never had a moment of awe, never had a moment of wonder where you want to figuratively kneel and kiss the ground, I I would doubt the depth of your religiosity. It's, it's, It's not bad. It's not as good as it really could be. Mm. Mm -hmm. Another thing this theme brings up for me is some of your teaching on integrating the negative or what we deem as negative. Mm. And I wonder if another way to say it too, Richard, would be to welcome or invite in whatever we call the other as a way to bring into that one reality. And I think, how does that language sit with you knowing that, especially in our current climate of otherizing another political party, another race, another gender, another sexuality. Can you speak to that, how uh, we integrate or welcome the other as a part of this theme? Otherness is our essential spiritual gift to get out of our own entrapment in egocentricity. And it never stops. Maybe that's the problem, that... Most of us, with some effort, overcome it in an attempt to sustain a marriage, our relationship with one other person. If not that, with our children. Most can do that far, you know, but some don't do that. If we can move beyond that, that school of otherness, of family, points beyond itself to what we'd call the extended family are the bigger race. Now, most people limit that to their ethnic group, their religion, their neighborhood, and their country, their religion. Each one is a step into otherness, and each one is a threat. You can pretty much tell where most people stop. Mm -hmm. And most of them stop pretty early, that people who just use a different language... And I I have to say that one because we in America are probably the most linguistically challenged country in the world. Maybe Canadians are close behind. Well, no, they're French. That's right. We just, we can grow up never hearing anything but English. And I can remember being irritated as a little boy. We had Mexicans in the town in Kansas where I grew up and my little mind went, why don't they talk right? Mm. (laughs) Why are they talking this strange language? And no one told me that I was the one who had to meet otherness Mm. in the Spanish language. We got a little education in it because of our idealization of Latin in the Catholic Church. But still, otherness is a great gift, and Jesus stretches this gift to the extreme in telling us to love the enemy, right? This is otherness at its absolute point. Mm -hmm. The one who is not just other, but oppositionally other, at least in your perception. And Jesus says, you got to even overcome that. 
talk about unitive consciousness, right. how can we question that Jesus understood that or was teaching that or inviting us into that when he told us to love the ultimate other, the enemy? Mm. That's huge. Mm. I it's mean, huge, yes. And even just thinking about how the sacred and profane dichotomy allows us to live in that othering world yeah. where it's like, as long as that's true, then I can be the good guy and you're the bad guy. Or whenever I feel pain and suffering and I don't want to feel that anymore, I can scapegoat that out, project it onto someone else and say, they're evil, they're the problem. Mm. I'm going to write them off as a monster, done and over. Yep, yep. And so it seems, this tenet seems so foundational for that transition into that unit of consciousness mm -hmm. that can see us as inextricably interrelated to each other, where we can no longer split each other apart in that way and dismiss each other. Yeah. And there seems to be a foundation too with how we relate to God. Is God as other or is there an I-thou relationship? Yeah, yeah. And how does it yeah. flow out of that? So it should be, in some ways, if God is other, then of course, everything else, every other person, the planet is all other. Is also other. That, that should be the card Christianity plays, that incarnation overcame that gap of God as other. And yet, dang it, we recreated it. The Lord Christ became other instead of Emmanuel, God with us, God in us. What a loss to history that we wasted these 2,000 years recreating Religion as separateness and fear of the holy other, W-H-O-L-L-Y, which wasn't H-O-L-Y, <laughs> the holy other. Yeah, sad. Richard, I'm wondering, you know, as we play with these two distinctions, can you give an example of something that you maybe previously categorized as profane that that categorization has dropped and or that label has fallen away and you no longer see it as profane. Just to put a little concrete example That's on that. That's easy for me. Is I it, became is it me and for the no. wrong reason. It's us. It's us. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in that era, sex, marriage mm. was profane. It was necessary to continue the human race. I'm sorry that you submitted to this lower <laughs> level. Sinful people that we are. But we chose the higher level. Mm -hmm. And that worked with young idealistic boys and girls. We, girls wanted to be virgins and boys wanted to be supposedly celibate. Yeah, that just fell apart. And I've struggled with how that's true, why that's true, how that affected my life. Not saying it was completely wrong. I don't think I could have done much that I did if I hadn't, you know, uh, not had a wife and not had children. So look how God brings good out of stupidity. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's the big obvious one. I mean, even the words we had in my generation were, well, you maybe these persisted. Dirty words. Did you speak? Of? Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, dirty. yeah. Yeah. And, and we even had a, a, oh, he was ancient. I don't know why they let him teach us, but they just couldn't pull him out of his role. He would speak of certain body parts as dirty parts. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, 100%. I grew up a Baptist, yeah. Richard. They, they, they were the best at that. They the made you feel so much shame the about the body. Oh, yeah. Wow. It's terrible. I mean, you know, how did, well, a lot of people have told me this in confession over the years when I'd be talking to them after they confessed their sexual sins. And men especially would say, how are you supposed to think of sex as sinful? And then one ritual of a wedding ceremony, and that night it's a sacrament. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Ah, ah, ah. The psyche can't. Uh, adjust. can make the uh, yeah. adjustment, you know, that what was sinful is now holy. So we just didn't have good catechesis, good understanding of the human person. But this is an outstanding example of where it backfired. And now it's backfiring in a major degree.
And do hear me, I'm not denying there is such a thing as the charism of celibacy, but it's much rarer than we Catholics gave our people the impression. I've met more nuns than priests, more women than men, who really appear to have the charism of celibacy. By that I'm saying, toward the end of their life, they're still healthy human beings, and they're happy human beings. Mm. If you don't see both of those, they don't have the charism. Mm. (laughs) If they're sour and picky and self-centered and only think about themselves, it hasn't worked. Mm. In fact, it's it's not worked. Mm. Yeah. It seems to invite us into becoming, and I don't think this is a word, but sacramentors. <laughs> it's good. I like that. People yeah. <laughs> making up words. Uh, <laughs> but people who live from the lens of seeing the sacred heart in all reality mm. and live committed to anointing reality to further bring out that sacramental depth of this yes. is all one, this is all yes. one, this is all one. You've written elsewhere about, well, in the universal Christ, you talked about the one lump of suffering. Mm. And as we try to sacramentalize reality, kind of to your story, Paul, we have to include suffering and death in that. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how this tenet connects with the one lump and our opportunity to sacramentalize even suffering and loss and heartbreak. This one comes as a genuine surprise to a lot of people that all suffering is the suffering of God. Let's just put it, mm. there. I've I've answered the whole, the only way I know how to answer. Yeah. There's one lump, there's one suffering, and we all participate in it. Now the people who talk that way for me were the Catholic mystics. I'm sure other mystics do too, but they were almost obsessed with it. Helping Jesus carry the cross was maybe the language they used, but this recognition that my suffering is not just my suffering, that my suffering is our suffering. And my ability to say yes to my suffering is joining you on the cross. I know that got sentimental and maudlin even, but it was in every Catholic monastery, like our Franciscan houses, we'd invariably have this 17th century painting of Jesus on the cross, one hand unnailed, moving from the cross into the body of Francis. Perhaps you've seen it. And Francis welcoming it. This transposition of person, of place, of thing, and this transposition of suffering that you don't have to see it in that literal way, but it helps facilitate the process. It really does. Uh, when, when you're, and I've, I've had too many suffering people tell me this in hospitals, when you're losing it toward the end of your life, that isn't going to be a maudlin, sentimental, you'll forget about your four-ish art tastes. <laughs> Never. <laughs> <laughs> and say, I just need that. I don't care that it's not the greatest art, it's the greatest symbol. And that's true of a lot of art. I say that in partial response because you brought up the image of the sacred heart, which the same thing applies. It's usually not good art. There's the crown of thorns around it. There's fire and flame. I love it. I know you think it's so cheesy, but I love it. No, we're saying the same thing. It's usually bleeding a few drops right. of blood. In anguish. And we had to give it the feminine form, which called the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Mm. It's a big movement in the Philippines. I remember the two hearts, and you'd drive by these little, little Nipa huts or walk by them all over the Philippines. And right at the doorway, they'd have the two hearts. Mm. And I just often wondered, what makes these people so attracted? Right. Mm to not just the one, but the feminine heart and the male. There are people who suffer a lot. Mm. And they need to sacralize, to legitimate, to allow, to forgive their suffering by uniting it with the one suffering. Mm. Mm -hmm. So what we're emphasizing here is the one suffering, not just 
with Christ's suffering. Mm-hmm. But Christ's suffering is the one suffering. Mm-hmm. You see? Yeah. He's the sacrament of what is true everywhere. It makes so much more sense out of that, you know, that the ways in which we're like, well, if God is all powerful and in control, that's right. power over hierarchy, uh-huh. then how do bad things happen in the world? You know, yes, and yes, yes, this, yes. this changes yes. our view of that question. It kind of, it, it, it dissolves that question because it's God has, has chosen the power with paradigm mm-hmm. to empower us. Thank you for saying mm-hmm. it that way. And yes. then, and then we can say God suffers when we suffer. Mm-hmm. It's not that God is sitting back and being like, Sorry, gotcha. I'm just going to unleash this hurricane, unleash these horrible fires in Australia. Too bad for you. It's like, no, God is deeply suffering with us, with creation. And and hopefully that animates us into action. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it just shifts the whole thing. And I think that's why that Sacred Heart image is so striking. Yeah. It, it invokes that the, the Sacred Heart is protected from nothing. Reality is mm, able to touch vulnerable. it. It's so vulnerable. Mm, mm. And that if you can get past the gaudy art of it often, it, it can really just pierce you. Richard, not long ago you went back to Kansas and you sent some photos around of, no, did I? of, of your house. And I asked you if you had a picture of your, your beautiful spot that you've mentioned on the podcast where you oh, would yeah. go as a little boy. You sent a photo to me and there is now a propane tank I know. On your sacred spot. <laughs> yes. And I just love that you're able to embrace the sacred and the propane. Oh, thank you. And I wonder if you can... Uh, <laughs> that ugly propane tank sitting there on my beautiful spot. That's true. They, remember, it wasn't really my home. It was my oh, your cousin. summer uh, farm home with yeah. my cousins. But go ahead. No, yeah. but I just, I mean, one, um, I just love, I love the play on the sacred and the propane. And, <laughs> he's so clever. He's, he's been working on that I, one for weeks. I was really weeks. excited about that. <laughs> but even just the, the, the symbolism of it, of yeah. like here now is something that is not considered typically sacred. But or like, beautiful even, yeah. But even beautiful, your spot yeah is now everything shifts, everything changes, and that is the one reality of it all. It just was such a nice metaphor for me. Thank you for bringing me back to it. (laughs) Uh, That day was so special. You all know this, that your childhood experiences become more and more beautiful the farther you get away from them. You realize the um, foundational fascinations and images were planted already then. And my summers on the western Kansas farm with my dear cousins was just, oh, my God. You know, nothing could be more boring for most people than western Kansas. It's just flat, but you deal with what you're handed. And when I would wake up and across that huge flat landscape, see the 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 waving wheat and the sun coming over it, and the birds in the trees, and it was just heavenly. And to go back there and to realize this isn't, another family owns it now. You know, he was gone for the day, so we got to walk around freely. It was just tugging, tugging at my heartstrings. To, how can something be and now not be? The barn was gone, trigger was the horse. That was Roy Rogers' horse, Trigger, wasn't it? I think so. (laughs) Trigger was gone. The water container for the cattle was still there. The silo was gone where we jumped naked into the grain. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That sounds uncomfortable. I'm just going to be honest. (laughs) That does not sound like fun to me, but I'm sure it was as a kid. Oh, little 12-year-old boys loved it. (laughs) Uh, Uh, Oh, it's just, I really want to go back again. hmm. Yeah, but that's not what you asked me. What did you ask me? I was just playing with the sacred and the propane. He he really uh, just wanted to say that. It just made me really chuckle. um, But yet there is the metaphorical element of... Even that. Even that. Yeah. Yeah. So as a way to kind of round out this episode... We've been trying to think, how do we practice these these themes? Is there anything that comes to mind for you about how do we practice the sense of there's only one reality for those who see deeply, and by reason of incarnation, there's no truthful distinction between sacred and profane? How do we practice that? 
It's a gift of allowing, not creating, allowing this to be true, overcoming your resistance to it by the the literal mind, which always wants to separate. Mm -hmm. You've heard me define diabolical, diabolos, to throw apart. That's literally what the word means. Religio, religament. How many times have I talked about that? But I don't know why other people don't talk about it. It's To me, it's so obvious. The diabolical is when you separate things. The religious is when you connect things. And the more broad, the more deep you can make the connections, the more obvious God is and the more obvious love is. And it's a benevolent universe. You're at home. It, you don't need to go to shrines. They're still nice as sacraments, but not an end in themselves. Like if I ever went to the Camino, I, I wish I'd done it when I was younger and in better shape. You know, it goes from France into Spain and it takes several weeks. I think my desire would be not to enter the big basilica in Compostello mm. at the end. But to say, no, this journey has been Mm. the sacred. I don't need all the Spanish decorations. (laughs) I'm sure I would go ahead, but I'd like to think I wouldn't need to. Because that makes me think this was the goal. The journey is the dream, as one of my Franciscan compatriots Mm. said in one of his poems. So, yeah, any practice whereby you can re-ligament this to that, Mm. especially where it's more difficult, especially where, you know, the ugly person, the unlikable person, the violent animal. I see a tiger killing a little deer, and I just don't like that tiger. I I really (laughs) turn off the, the TV sometimes. I do. Or at least I just look away. Why are you doing that? Don't you know she's a mother and that mother's gonna die now? And yet I see that the tiger go home and feeding her little baby tigers. I don't understand. There's an irrationality to the cycle of life because it includes, damn it the cycle of death. Mm -hmm. That's what the cross reveals and proclaims and says, get this, gaze upon the crucified, and you've got the whole mystery. But it will always be something we resist. I remember preaching in a big tent in England oh, years ago, and it must have been saying something in this direction. And an Englishman They always sort of resent us glib Americans, probably for good reason. He got up yelling at me. Here you come again, you dang Christians and Catholics telling us suffering is good. Mm. No, it's not that. Yes, it is. That's what you were trying to say. We're sick of it. And he walked out of the tent. And I know I just didn't say it well enough. But that is the attitude of a lot of Christians. Mm -hmm. They think we've created, we used to call it, what mysticism? The mysticism of suffering. The over-romanticization of suffering. Yeah, yeah, it's almost like glorifies it. Yeah, glorifying suffering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we've done that enough that I can see why the poor guy was dang mad. He was missing the point, too. At least I think he was. Yeah. Thank you, Richard. Thanks, Richard. Well, should we look at some listener questions? Let's do it. I believe in the incarnation and the one reality of a loving God alive and active here and now. At the same time, my country, Australia, is dealing with the immediate catastrophic impact of dangerous climate change, including months of unprecedented forest fires, homes and lives lost coral bleaching damaging the Great Barrier Reef, the collapse of ecosystems. I am an elder and grandfather. I feel this pain. Our politics is divided and our national government is part of the problem, blocking and even reversing real action to address the causes of climate change. For my part, I am active in working to shift consciousness 
and participate in nonviolent action to protect the planet. I am a man of faith, hope and love. I have a first world standard of living. I'm simultaneously part of the problem and part of the solution. I struggle to live in faith, hope and love to model action and contemplation during this epoch of mass extinction. How do we live incarnation here and now? My, the way you say it so calmly but firmly is already very helpful. You feel like a a faith-filled man, and yet you're holding an unbelievably real tension that can't be resolved fully, only partly. How do we do it? Well, we certainly do it, first of all, inside ourselves. And I don't mean to individualize it and subjectively limit ourselves. But you sound like you have the social awareness already. You want to do something socially. I'm going to say something that will probably disappoint you and maybe even scandalize you, but I'm not sure. Because of the archetype we were given of the life and death of Jesus, that mass extinction isn't in our future. I'm not sure. Not saying there will be. But Jesus did die on the cross. He didn't pretend to die. He did die. I don't know any other way this greedy, superficial, capitalistic, materialistic world that we now are stuck with is going to choose to reform itself unless in some ways it hits bottom. Now, I don't know how to precisely define hits bottom, but um, collapse is a very real possibility. And Australia, beautiful Australia, I've been there about four or five times, is really symbolizing it because of the massiveness of your suffering. Maybe California is going to be the same thing for us. Who knows? Let's be open to the possibility that this could be leading to major catastrophe, global catastrophe. Left on the course we're on, if we stay on the course of the status quo, business as usual, this is certain. This is not a conspiracy theory. (laughs) We are destroying the earth. And the next 10 years are going to be very hard. We're a foretaste, your country, our country, and many others. But we won't hear about it in Bangladesh and little Micronesian islands as they're flooded. It has to happen in countries like ours, which control all the media and all the importance. So let's look at it. Let's learn from it. Let's take what urgency from this is good and necessary. And I think if this leads us to an urgent sense of a need for real Christianity, real spirituality, then it will be serving its purpose. Because what we have now is not very real. It's just a formula. We mentally believe, but we've been quite cooperative, as you know, in the destruction of the planet. And now we're seeing it in highly visible and destructive forms. Thank you for saying it so well. I'm also drawn to, because of the mystery of this tenet, Richard, to reflect on how we're invited to have compassion, to suffer with each other and our planet. And what I hear in this question, he didn't say his name, did he? Mm -hmm. I wish I I knew your name, but to say... You know, Cynthia Bourgeau talks about a lesson she learned from her teacher, Rafe, when he said, no conscious act is ever wasted. Mm. That somehow, somehow, in the mystery of this one reality, we are in this together, and you're not alone in your grief and Mm -hmm. suffering. That somehow, in our small conscious acts, we are impacting the whole, you know, may it be that quantum physics is true and that we are entangled (laughs) 
you know, but this seems to be the thing that the mystics have been pointing to that the incarnation teaches us Mm. is that we're somehow all bound together in the sacred heart of Christ and that your suffering, it's not being experienced alone Mm -hmm. and that therefore whatever we can do, we are doing it together in service to the whole, but just to acknowledge the suffering that's happening and that our hearts are joined with you in that deep suffering. Yeah, this is your question and really hits home for me. And it's, it's one that my wife, Laura and I, this question sits on the front porch of our hearts all the time. We talk about it. The one sauce I get is it's shaping the way that we live, the way that we vote, the way that we try to participate in the life of Christ in community. That is one of those questions that has, that doesn't have an immediate response and answer, but how can we live into this together? Like you said, Brie, we're all in this together. And uh, it took so much respite in your response and just mm-hmm. acknowledging the reality of it and mm-hmm. that it's something that we've created and how do we be a part of the solution, whether that solution is just being on the hospice team That's right. as we go towards extinction wow. or, or whether we are able to somehow. Team for the planet. Yeah. Wow. Well said. Huh. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Both. It's much more courageous for young people to say it than for me to say it, because you're going to live in this world. And that's it for today's episode of Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr. This podcast is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation. Thanks to the generosity of our donors. The beautiful music you're listening to was brought to you by Will Reagan. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend to help create a bigger and more inclusive community. To learn more about Father Richard and to receive his free daily meditations in your electronic mailbox, visit cac.org. To learn more about the themes of the Universal Christ, visit universalchrist.org. From the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.